Thank you, choir. Sounded like you meant that. Nice. Thank you, Jim and Lauren, Nathan. It's good to be in the Lord's house. It's good to have a little bit of rain. One of our preschool workers, Jeff Castleberry, told me he had to explain to some of those kids, this is called rain, because some of them weren't born the last time it rained. Uh, that may be true for some of our, I think, the Snellens kids here. He's eight weeks old. It may be close on uh, Wesley Snellen may have never seen that before. We are grateful to God for all the provisions that he gives us. We had a, a wonderful service remembering the life of Billy Goodman uh, yesterday, who died a few weeks ago, and uh, Lauren uh, played beautifully uh, Closer Walk with Thee, and we celebrated uh, just the, the goodness and the legacy of the life of Billy, and it was uh, sweet to hear Dr. Sherman uh, talk about what it means to be in this sacred space and how many lives have been transformed in this very room. And it was interesting hearing him and Bill Moody talk later about, uh, you know, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, what, what Bill remembers um, from the two Bills, what they both remember from this church. And it's just neat to remember that we're part of something bigger than ourselves, that this church has a long and healthy legacy and that we have a responsibility now as the members of this church to see it into the future for the next 75 years, for my kids and for those who come after us, that they would find us faithful as we move forward. I'm excited about our music search committee. Uh, I can't wait to share where we are. I can't say anything yet, apparently, so that's just a tease. I'm sorry, uh, but it's going to be soon and very soon that we are going to be able to uh, tell you um, where we are and where we uh, feel like the Lord is leading us. Today is October, so we start a new series. It's, of course, not a really whole new series because we've been walking through the Gospel of John throughout the year of 2019 and going back into Advent of 2018. But for these next four weeks, we're going to be in these passages that are leading up to the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John. So we're going to call it Journey to the Cross. And these texts that we're going to be looking at throughout this month, we're moving past the farewell discourse with Jesus and his disciples in the upper room, and we're going towards the passion narrative. You know that the passion narrative includes the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus and the trials of Jesus and his crucifixion and his resurrection. So some churches celebrate Christmas in July. We're going to have Easter in November this year, which we're going to have a little Holy Week celebration with Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter um, all in November. I can't wait. I'm excited about next week. I think we'll be here, my family and I. We are on fall break, like Trey said, and we are headed in about an hour. We'll be driving south to the beach uh, for the week, which I'm excited about, um, spend some time with my family. We didn't do anything this summer like that, so it'll be fun to get away, but I don't want to prepare a sermon. It takes about 15, 20 hours to prepare a decent sermon, uh, so I'm not going to do that next week. So my buddy, Dr. Rob Timms, is going to come and share a word with you from John 18 next week. Dr. Timms is a uh, experienced pastor. He works at Lifeway now. He oversees a group that uh, writes custom curriculum for churches. So he's a discipleship guy. He's a Bible guy. He went to Beeson Divinity School, which is the best school there is, of course, where I went as well. And you will be blessed uh, by him next week. And so he's going to be preaching on John 18. But before we get there, let's finish John chapter 
17 today. This is the very tail end of the high priestly prayer that Jesus prays with his disciples. We think he may be in movement already, but this is the end of the farewell discourse, John 13 through John 17. So why don't we stand, if you're able to, in honor of God's word. Please don't stand, Bobby, with your knee. Please don't. No, just sit right there. Marcy, Tom, you just, you sit. Marcy got home at 7.30 this morning after being in the big house in Ann Arbor yesterday to see Michigan uh, beat a top, was it top 10 team they beat? Who would, top 20, top uh, 13, 13 team that they beat. And she makes it back to church on Sunday morning. That is faithfulness right there as a church member, would, that we all would be so faithful. Thank you, Marcy. Hear now the word of the Lord from John 17, verses 20 to 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You know, I, I actually enjoy looking at church websites. You can tell a lot about what a church projects as their image based on their website. I enjoy seeing kind of what other churches are up to and it's always interesting to see how they present themselves, and it seems like most church websites, including our own, include somewhere on the front page or two of their websites some picture of their congregation, maybe gathered in worship or in the lobby in a time of fellowship, and of course, the pictures that we choose for these websites are inevitably of beautiful, happy, well-dressed people who are shaking hands and who are smiling and who appear to have it all together. And if you didn't know any better, you might think that that particular church was a church that was free from problems or free from any kind of disunity and that those people really do have it all together. But if you've ever been a member of an actual church, you'd know better. You know that Christian brotherhood and sisterhood is actually something similar to real brotherhood and sisterhood, that sometimes siblings don't always get along. I don't know about your kids, but my kids don't always share perfect unity between them. 
you know that true fellowship, fellowship means belonging to each other. True Christian fellowship, which is one of our five purposes here as a church. Gabe, it's in the bottom of that file there, that, that, that triangle that shows that fellowship is one of the five purposes of our church, to belong together. We're, we're baptized into a family of faith that binds us together closer than blood, that we are now members of one another. But you know that fellowship is not always easy. I saw a little poem recently that said, to be with the saints in heaven, oh, it will be great glory. But to be with the saints on earth, well, that's another story. <laughs> Here in John 17, we see the prayer that Jesus Christ himself offers up to his Father in the presence of his disciples. It's a really personal and intimate moment, and he asked his Father in this prayer to make our fellowship effective, that we may be one. Last week, we looked at the first 19 verses of this amazing prayer, and one commentator that I read said that this is the real Lord's Prayer, that the Lord's Prayer that we say really should be called the disciples' prayer because it's meant for them, but this is the Lord's Prayer for us. And I argued that last week that this prayer is really meant for all who will come after the disciples and follow Christ as believers, as Christians. And he prays first in the first five verses that God would be glorified in his sacrificial death and resurrection. And then Jesus prays that his disciples would not be in the world, but not of the world. That's not what he prays. He prays that they would not be of the world, but sent into the world as agents of redemption. It's not about disengaging from the earth, it's about intentionally engaging the earth around us. After the sermon last week, Steve Newton gave me this great illustration. There's a new movie coming out next month about Harriet Tubman, uh, the greatest conductor on the Underground Railroad. And, and the point that Steve made was so perfect, I said, I should have used that, so I'm gonna use it now, that she was born a slave in Maryland, but she escaped to freedom by God's grace. She, she made it to Pennsylvania, a free state where she had her freedom, and she could kick back and put her feet up and relax. Is that what she did? No. She went back, not once, not twice, but 13 trips she made to the south where she was in, in, in grave danger in order to bring those back out of slavery just like she had been brought out of slavery. That's the image of John 17, that we who've been freed from the bonds of sin and death forever are not freed from those bonds to sit back and put our feet up, but to go back into that orphanage of the world that we've been rescued out of in order to bring others back out of it as well. And I argued again last week that this prayer is for all of us, and now here in verse 20, it's made explicit by Jesus that he's praying for future believers, including you and me. It says, I do not ask for these only, these 11 only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Isn't it an amazing privilege to hear our Savior pray for us? 
it would behoove us to pay careful attention to what exactly he's praying for, for you and me who would believe in him later. There are four things that we see in these six verses that Jesus prays for us. They'll be on the screen here. First, he prays that we would be one. Second, he prays that we would prove the gospel to be true. Third, he prays that we would see his glory. And fourth, he prays that we would know God. Let's look at each of these things this morning and see how we can live fully into these, playing our part in God's redemptive purposes and in the prayer of Christ himself. First, look at how many times in verses 21 to 23 that Jesus prays that we would be one, that we would be unified. Verse 21, that they all may be one. Verse 22, at the end, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 23, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. Three times, he's obviously deeply concerned with the unity of the church going forward. And what does that unity look like? Does it look like holding hands and singing kumbaya? Well, not exactly. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about something deeper and more profound than a physical surface level unity. He prays in verse 21 that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. The body of Christ is to display the same kind of unity that exists between God the Father and God the Son. Perfect union, completely inseparable. How is that possible among broken, fallen people? Well, because Christ dwells in us, as Rachel has just so cleverly shown us. Verse 23 explains that mystery. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Rachel illustrated this point really well. And Trey did a great job a few weeks ago in, in September of illustrating John 15, where Jesus says to his disciples, abide in me, abide, 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 remain in me, dwell in me, and I will dwell in you. I will abide in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But what does it mean for us to be in Christ and for Christ to be in us? That's kind of a mysterious statement. It means that we are part of Christ. It means that we belong to the same body, and therefore Christ is our representative. That means that when Christ died, we were united with him in his death. That also means that when Jesus rose, that we rose with him in his resurrection. What Jesus did, we did also. Skip Ryan, pastor in, in Dallas, Presbyterian guy, says in his book on the Gospel of John, he says, somehow in the mystery of God's economy, somehow we were with Jesus when he died and when he rose. His death was our death. His life was our life. Isn't that beautiful? And it's true. And because we were there with Christ in his death, and because we were there with Christ in his resurrection, 
We are now united to him in this mysterious, profound way. And if you are united with Christ now, and I am united with Christ now, then we are united to each other as well. That's what forms unity among God's people, among Christians. There's nothing less than the cross and the empty tomb that forms the basis for our unity. Our unity is not about listening to the same kind of music or preferring the same kind of music. Our unity isn't about going to the same Bible study or reading the same authors or voting the same way. The basis of our unity is the cross of Christ and the resurrection, the empty tomb. So when we were raised up out of the waters of baptism, it was an outward symbol of the inward reality that we had died to ourselves with Christ and we had been raised into a whole new kind of existence with Jesus. People who've died with Christ and are then reborn are, are, are not even human anymore. There's something other than. It's a new way to be human, as Switchfoot says. Right, Brad? Where's Brad? I knew you'd get that. <laughs> yeah. It's a new way to be human. A whole new humankind, which means that we're now part of this same new species that's called Christian, which literally means little Christ. We are representatives of Christ as he is our representative. A lot of times when I think about unity in the church, though, I think about this kind of surfacey, you know, everybody getting along. You know, I, I pray that John and Jane would, would make up because things have been awkward between them. And, you know, that, that's not exactly what Jesus is praying for, though. He's asking God the Father to remind us of the new reality that we are already made into one body through Jesus Christ who is in us and who we are also in. Therefore, we don't really build unity. The unity is already there. We simply live into it. We live into the reality that we are already spiritually more deeply unified through dying and rising together with Jesus. Once we establish that our relationships with each other are built on this truth, then we can enjoy the kind of oneness, the kind of fellowship that only comes through Jesus Christ. The second point, Gabe, go to this point number two, please. The second point, unity part two, really. Jesus prays that in our unity that we would prove the gospel to be true. You say, where do you see that, Nathan? That sounds like, a, that's eisegesis is what they call it in seminary. That, that's pulling something out there that's not there. Well, I don't think so. Remember that throughout this prayer, Jesus isn't concerned with us getting along so that we can have a happy church or that we can have an easy life or that we can grow a big church and be a mega church. He's got bigger plans in mind than that. When he gave his disciples the, the new commandment that we, we celebrate every year at Maundy Thursday, the mandatum novum, what was the new commandment in John 13, 34? Do you remember? It was that we love one another just as Christ has loved us. Is that where it ends? What does he say right after that in verse 35? Do you remember? 
He says, so that the world will know that you are my disciples. Look at verse 21 here again. That they all may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Then look two verses later in verse 23. That they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. And why did God the Father send God the Son? Well, John 3.16 tells us, doesn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the whole reason that Jesus came. He was sent here on a rescue mission by God the Father as the centerpiece of God's great redemption plan to bring this entire fallen, broken world back unto himself and to restore what's broken. It's all through Jesus that this is happening. And we call that the gospel message, that through Christ's death and resurrection, God is making all things new. And one day he's gonna return to finish that work. So how does the world know that the gospel is true? Jesus tells us here that in our unity, the world will know. Our fellowship will let the world know that Jesus was sent by God. Skip Ryan, again, I'm loving his book right now. He, he puts it real bluntly. He says, Jesus says that the pagan, unbelieving world is given the right to evaluate the truth of whether or not God the Father sent God the Son in the incarnation based on what they see in our relationships. Wow, the stakes are high. There's a lot more at stake here than avoiding awkward situations. Oh, they must be new, they're in my pew. That's not what this is talking about here. But that kind of attitude that kind of attitude in the church can actually speak against the truth of the gospel to anyone who observes that kind of attitude. Third, the third point, Gabe, go to the next one. Jesus prays that we would behold his glory. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. You know, there's a lot of things that I like in this world, a lot of things that I really like and get fired up about and get excited about in this world. I get excited about, you know, uh, we talked with Chris Keaton about, you know, nice suit, you know, at Macy's. You go see Chris and get a nice suit, that, that excites me. I was driving with May by a Richland Country Club the other day, and it was beautiful. It was lush and green. They must water a ton out there because all around it was brown and, and drought-stricken, but the golf course was, was lush and verdant. And I said, man, it would be so fun to be out there with some buddies right now playing golf. My brother-in-law drove not one, but, but two models of Tesla at a Tesla dealership in Naples, Florida. It was telling me, about him, Nathan, there's a button on there called ludicrous mode, and you push ludicrous mode, and it goes so fast, it goes zero to 60 in 2.8 seconds, and I said, oh, that'd be sweet to have one of those, and my mind starts 
thinking about these things, and I start chasing after these things that are not bad things. Nothing wrong with Teslas, they're cool. Nothing wrong with golf, it's a great game. Nothing wrong with a nice suit. But these are not ultimate things. If you love these things, like if you love golf, chances are you'll spend a lot of time and money on it. If you love Teslas, you will probably drive one and spend a good deal of time and money obtaining one. If you love the money that provides the earthly means of obtaining these things, you will probably be compelled to chase after some form of economic success. But Jesus prays here that we would see his glory, the glory that God the Father gave to God the Son along with his perfect love from the beginning, since before the beginning of the world. Why does he pray this? Because when we behold the glory of God in its full unbridled splendor and awesomeness and perfection, everything else in the world around us grows strangely dim in the light of his glory and amazing grace. Everything else pales in comparison. When we get an accurate picture of the greatness of the glory of God, we fall on our knees and we worship and we fall in love with the glory of God. We chase after it at the expense of everything else. Like Paul in Philippians 3 who says, I consider everything else rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. I have considered everything as loss because we believe God's glory is better. Randy Gentry, one of our deacons, he's here today, was helping Ron. He's retired now, so he's been helping our facilities director with some punch list items here at the church, and he's more mechanically minded than me, which isn't saying a lot, but he's, he's very good at uh, fixing things and getting stuff done around here. So he had a shirt on the other day that said, heaven is better period. And Calvin and I were talking to him about things that may or may not be in heaven. And the answer we kept coming back to was, we don't know, but we do know heaven will be better. Then fill in the blank, heaven will be better, period. Heaven is better. Then anything else you want to put in the, the blank there, heaven is better. I believe that with all of my heart. And Jesus prays here that we would see his glory. Heaven is the place where God's glory is on full display, no longer glimpsed through the mirror of this world darkly, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, and it will be better. Jesus prays that we would see his glory as better, period, because he knows that chasing after anything else ends up in destruction. Since his glory is better, that's the truth, then chasing after something else besides Christ's glory is a wasted time at best. And at worst, our idols kill us and lead us to the, the path of hell. Which means that any minute spent chasing after something else is a minute wasted. A lifetime spent 
on chasing something other than Christ's glory only results in a wasted life. What a shame. Remember that Jesus tells us in John 10.10 that the thief comes, what? To steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus has come that we may have life and have it to the fullest. Jesus' desire for us is to flourish and to thrive and to live the abundant life, which is only made possible by pursuing his glory above all else. Finally, the fourth point here that Jesus prays for us is really glory part two, that we would know the all-glorious God. Look at verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. We know that in the Bible, when, when it says a, a person's name, Jesus says, I, I made known to them your name, God. A name was so much more than just a label that was used to call someone. A name was indicative of all that that person was. A name was the sum of all of that person's attributes, which is why the messenger angel told Mary to name her son Yeshua, salvation, because he would be salvation incarnate to the world and to God's people. So when Jesus says here that he reveals to us God's name and that he will continue to reveal it to us, he's saying he reveals God to us. He shows us who God is. When I was in college at Belmont, I I'd been in church my whole life, good youth group kid, you know, leader in my youth group, but I hadn't really grown in my faith in, in a really deep way. I didn't really own my faith for myself. I didn't really pursue the heart of God until we started meeting with a mentor every Friday morning, 6.45, the pancake pantry. She would have four cups of coffee on the table. Mary, our server, some of you know Mary, uh, She's still going at the Pancake Pantry. Uh, she's from the old Gatlinburg store, but she lives here now. And we would meet with our mentor every Friday for three and a half years to read a book of the Bible together or read a, a, a book by a Christian author and to study and to pray together and to hold each other accountable and to sharpen each other as iron sharpens iron. And one of the books that we read that left an indelible impact on my life as a young Christian was Knowing God by J.I. Packer, the Canadian theologian. Little did I know that a few years later, while pursuing my master's at Beeson Divinity School, I would get to meet Dr. Packer and to tell him personally, uh, to shake his hand and look into his eyes and tell him how much that little book meant to me as a young 20-year-old at Belmont University. In that book, Packer says, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Isn't that great? It's so true. Let me read it again. Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. That hit me like a ton of bricks as a 20-year-old. I began to understand that I was, I was spinning my wheels chasing after things that were not ultimate things. 
I began at that point to pursue a deeper level of intimacy with God through his word, through his church, through his ministry. So two points of application here to close. Let's love each other. Let's pursue fellowship with one another as if the world is watching, as if the world depends on it, because it kind of does. Let us be so unified, let us be so one in spirit and in love that the world would know that God is making all things new through Jesus Christ. And let us move our focus off of earthly things onto the things of God. Let us pursue ultimate things. May we realize that God's glory is better, period. Just better. And as we pursue his glory, may we come to know him in a more intimate fellowship with God and in more perfect unity with each other. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word that reveals this beautiful prayer that you pray over us, that we would be unified, that we would be one. God, I pray that you would help us to realize what's at stake here, that the outside world is watching, that they look to us to see what Jesus is like, that the way we treat our server at lunch today will reveal who you are. The way that we treat our children, the way we treat our spouse, the way we, we treat our parents. Like Dr. Ayler said, the way we treat people at Walmart. Whew, that's a tough place to be, God. It shows the world who you are. God, I pray that we would realize that you have taken us in to be part of yourself and therefore we have died to ourselves and we've been raised into a whole new kind of existence with you. That when we emerge from the waters of baptism, God, it's a symbol of the reality that we've been born again into a whole new kind of humanity. That you have made us new from the inside out and that is the spiritual basis for our unity with you and with one another. God, I pray that people would sense that in our church and in our lives everywhere we go. I thank you for the, the true warmth that I experience here on a weekly basis with God's people, with these saints here who love me, who love my family, and who love each other so well. May we continue to pursue that path of Christian fellowship, of Christian brotherhood and sisterhood in bonds that are deeper than blood. May we sacrificially, joyfully give of ourselves for the sake of the other as we love one another just as you have loved us. And God, forgive us for chasing after the things of this world we know that they don't last. We know that they don't lead to any kind of flourishing, but we do it anyway. God, I pray that you would shut our ears to the temptations of the evil one who whispers lies about what is good and pleasant and pleasing. And may we hear the truth that abundant life is found in you. May we flourish, may we thrive as we pursue your glory above all else 
because we know it is better. God, we love you. We pray these things in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We're going to sing a song of surrender now as a response time. Take my life. Lead me, Lord. It's a song of submission and surrender. Whatever it is that you need to give over to God today as we sing this song, I pray that you would do that. Maybe you just want to pray with somebody. Uh, Trey, I'll ask if you to come up here. Brad, Jane, if you'll come up here too. If you want to pray with uh, a prayer warrior today because you got something on your heart, just come forward for prayer. You can just come to the altar if you just want to kneel and pray privately. Maybe it's time for you to join Woodmont Baptist Church and you say, I want to be part of this team. I want to be a part of this family. I want to sacrifice and give for the sake of the other and, and love the people in this church as they have loved me better than they've loved me as you become a part of this family of faith that is not the, the shiny, happy people that you necessarily see on the website. The picture is great. Everybody's holding hands in the picture and it looks great. Andy's done a great job with that. But it's not always that easy. It's tricky doing life together, but it's a beautiful way to live. It's the only way to live into God's purposes. Christianity is a team sport. You can't do it on your own. Maybe you realize that today and you want to come forward and be a part of this church. Maybe you've never surrendered your life to Christ in the first place and you feel like the hound of heaven has been after you and you need to surrender for the first time to the call of Christ on your life to come and die to yourself and be raised with him. Maybe you've never been baptized and you need to be baptized and you're ready to take that step of faith to make a public profession of faith. I'm not doing private baptisms anymore, by the way. I just feel like the Lord is telling me that's not what we need to do. We need to do public professions of faith in our church. So I'm, I just feel strongly about that at Woodmont, that when we baptize, I want our church family to see it, to celebrate together. And if you want to do that, then please come forward and let me uh, talk to you about that. Whatever it is you need to do during this time, let's stand forward and sing, Take My Life, Lead Me, Lord.